Hey everyone, this is T-Roll, the host of the Campus Outreach Podcast. We're taking a break from our normal podcast over the summer, and instead we'll be posting audio versions of various talks that were given at our beach project from earlier this summer. If you are interested in viewing the video form of the following message, please go to cobirmingham.org forward slash campus talks to find all of our talks from this year's beach project. Thanks so much and enjoy today's talk. So, Olin started yesterday, we told you that we are walking through the story of Scripture that starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation. And so, here's the big idea, the big picture. Even if you've never read all 66 books in the Bible, by tomorrow morning, you will understand not only the story of God's Word and Holy Scripture, but you'll also understand the story, the meaning, the purpose of the universe. And there's actually six chapters to this story. Owen went through the first three chapters yesterday. He started with creation. You guys remember this? We're in Genesis 1 and 2. And, and he described that God created everything out of nothing. And each and every day that God made something, he blessed it. What did God say everything was in creation? It was good. So he'd make mountains, he'd make animals, and he'd say that this is good. Now this word good does not mean average, mediocre, or just okay. It means blessed. It means in harmony. It means perfection. And God saved his best work for last because on the final day of creation, what did God make? He made what? He made Adam and Eve, man and woman. And they weren't just good, they were what? Very good. Very good. You guys paid attention because they were made in his very own image. And so what he said is that humanity, you and I, Adam and Eve, were made to worship God, to glorify Him, to serve Him, and obey Him. And how is that, how do, how is that going? Not very good. Because in just two chapters, after Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we find Genesis 3, and Adam and Eve, they disobey God, right? They eat the fruit, and they desire to be like God. They don't want to serve Him. They don't want to worship Him. They don't want to obey Him. And instead of living for the Creator, they live for creation. Instead of worshiping the Maker, they start worshiping something that God has made. They have a selfish desire to be God. And it destroys everything. Now we've got 300 people in this room, and I don't know you all, but guess what I do know about you? I know the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And you might be thinking to yourself, Ben, you don't know my story, what I've experienced, what I've done. What's been done to me? But here's the truth for everybody in this room. The worst thing that has ever happened to you is the same worst thing that's ever happened to me. It's when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. Because when they did, sin enters the world. And it distorts, disrupts, and destroys everything. It separates us. First and foremost, it separates us from who? From God. But also each other. Adam and Eve start sinning against each other. But it also separates us from ourselves and even our work and our creation. Sin disrupts everything in creation. And so then we move to chapter 2, which was this idea of promise, which is essentially what the whole Old Testament is about. And the theme of the Old Testament is this, is that things are jacked up. Things are not as they were intended to be, and we need somebody to fix it. And Noah tried to fix it. And Abraham tried to fix it. And Moses tried to fix it. And guess what? They couldn't fix it. And so there's a promise. There's a longing. There's a foreshadowing of predicting that one day there will be a hero. 
One day someone will show up on the scene and make everything right. Y'all with me? And you guys have probably hung out in enough campus outreach circles to know that when in doubt, the answer is always what? Jesus, okay? We make a big deal about Jesus, and that's what I'm going to be talking about this morning, is Jesus, and how he is the solution, the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament, okay? So the reason why we talk a lot about Jesus in Bible studies and campus meetings on Beach Project is because we believe Jesus is the GOAT. He's the greatest. I know there's a lot, a lot of debates, you know, in the sports world about who's the GOAT. Is it MJ, Kobe, or LeBron? The Bible says there's only one GOAT, and his name is Jesus. Now, before you tune me out, because you're probably thinking to yourself, well, I know Jesus is a big deal. I wouldn't be here if I didn't think Jesus was good. I, I, I want to reawaken you to the greatness of Jesus. Does that make sense? Because if you think about it, from a worldly perspective, Jesus didn't have any of the trappings of how we typically define greatness in a worldly way. Let's go to our next slide. When we think about greatness in a worldly, earthly way, we think about an image like this. Have you ever thought about this? I think this is, this is Ryan Reynolds, you know, Hollywood A-list celebrity. But advertisements, it doesn't matter what they're selling, ultimately, what are they selling? A chance to be great. You ever thought about that? This is, a, this is an ad that's targeted at men. Did you know that whether it's a razor, a car, or a pair of shoes, every advertisement exec tries to sell greatness. So if you shave with this razor, it'll make you great. If you drive this car, it'll make you great. If you wear these shoes, it'll make you great. And greatness is typically sold this way, as power, as sex, and money. You see it right here in this advertisement? If you use this cologne, you'll be powerful, you'll have sex appeal, and you'll have money. You ever thought about this? Jesus didn't have any of these things. Jesus didn't have any worldly power. He was born in an obscure village. Anybody from a, from a really small town? Okay. Jesus grew up with less than 500 people in his village. He was the child of a poor woman. He was born in a manger who had a really bad reputation. As you know this, for the first 30 years of his life, Jesus didn't go to college. He didn't get his GED. He was a blue-collar, minimum, minimum wage worker. He was a carpenter. He worked with his hands. He had calluses. And for three years of his life, he traveled around preaching the good news of the gospel. Do you know this? Jesus had no sex appeal. The prophet Isaiah describes Jesus this way. He had no form or majesty, and there was no beauty in him that, he would, that we would desire him. Okay? On a scale of 1 to 10, Jesus was like a 4. He wasn't sexy. And on top of that, he was a virgin. Look, we live in a world today that says you are not a real man unless you're sexually active. You're not a real woman unless you're in a relationship. And yet Jesus was a virgin. Jesus was never married. And there's never been a more satisfied human individual than Jesus Christ when he walked this earth. He had no sex appeal. And he had no money. At one point, Jesus says this about himself. I don't even have a place to rest my head. Do you know this? Jesus was not athletic. He never wrote a book. He never held political office. In fact, Jesus didn't even have a family. He never owned a home. He never went to college. He wasn't from a big city. Jesus didn't even do what you did two days ago. He never traveled more than 200 miles from his own hometown. Jesus didn't do any of the things that our world typically associates with greatness. So what makes him the goat? What makes him the goat? 
Well, I'm glad you asked. Okay? So who is Jesus? Let me give you a quick little historical background. Jesus was born ethnically. He was a Jew. He was an Israelite. And at the time, the nation of Israel was under Roman control. So that means that there was an emperor named Caesar Augustus, who was the ruler, the emperor, and he actually set himself up as an object of divine worship. So one day, this will start ringing bells, this is the Christmas story, but a messenger or angel appears to a young woman named Mary, who's engaged or betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now both Mary and Joseph were descendants of King David, and this is what the messenger says. He says, don't be afraid. You found favor with God. You will bear a son and give him the name Jesus. And he will be great. He'll be called the Son of God. And God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over God's people forever. His kingdom will have no end. Now who here likes watching uh, gender reveals on like Instagram and YouTube? Right? And you'll see a little confetti, maybe a little smoke. People get creative. This is the greatest gender reveal of all time. Okay? Because an angel shows up. And starts listing off these unique names that will be given to Jesus. And here's what you got to understand. These names are, are full of significance. First off, Jesus is called Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel means God is with us. And then he's called Jesus. The name Jesus literally means that God saves. And then he's given one more name, Jesus Christ. Now just so you understand, that is not his last name. Like I'm Ben Weber. It was not Jesus Christ. Christ is actually a title. It's a designation. It's a job description. And you know what the Christ means? It means Messiah, Savior, or Anointed One. So his name literally is God saves and I'm the King. You with me? This is who Jesus is. And yet, for the first 30 years of his life, he's raised in a small, quiet, obscure town called, called Nazareth. Until he reaches the age of 30 and he says, now it's time for me to start my mission. And so the first thing Jesus does to launch his public ministry, anybody know? He goes and gets baptized. He goes and gets baptized. Just a couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of baptizing a baseball player at our school. And it was so cool because his teammates gathered, his parents gathered, his siblings gathered to watch him receive the sacrament of baptism. And guess what? When Jesus gets baptized, his family shows out too. Now, yesterday, Owen said that Jesus is part of this thing called the Trinity, that God is one God but three persons. And so when Jesus' family shows up for his baptism, we see the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. And Jesus receives baptism, and he hears the big, booming, audible voice of God the Father, and God says what? This is my Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Now, think about this just for a moment. Because I know there's a lot of students in this room who want to have impact like Jesus. Who want to be on mission like Jesus. Until this point, has Jesus healed anybody? No. Has Jesus performed a miracle? Has he preached a sermon? And yet what? How does God feel about him? He says, this is my beloved son. And we mentioned this yesterday. But do you see this? Once again, we don't earn or merit God's favor. It's not based on what we do to earn his love. God blesses his son with favor, with blessing, and it compels him to obedience. You see this? His identity as a beloved son or beloved daughter compels him, propels him to engage in the very mission of God. 
The love of God motivates us and compels us. And you know, want to know where Jesus goes next? He leaves the waters of baptism and he goes straight to the wilderness. He goes to the desert. And just like Adam and Eve, Jesus faces the same tempter and the same temptation as Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now think about Adam and Eve. When they're tempted by the snake, guess what? They've got food. They've got companionship. They're in a garden. They've got responsibility. And yet they what? They failed. They disobeyed. But Jesus, he's all alone. And you know this? He was actually fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. You want to talk about hangry. That's what Jesus is feeling. And Satan himself puts the full court press on Jesus. And unlike Adam and Eve, they disobey. Jesus remains faithful. And then he starts his earthly ministry. And so he travels to this part of the world called Galilee. And he starts proclaiming a message called the gospel. He starts proclaiming a message called the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. Let's go to the next slide. Now you've probably heard the word gospel before. It's not a genre of music. It's not just when choirs start singing. Gospel actually means good news. Now, no, nobody reads the, the newspaper anymore. We get our news from Twitter and websites. But think about what good news is. It's not preference. It's not subjective. It's not opinion. It's not hearsay. It's cold, hard facts. And this ain't fake news. This is what? This is good news. And Jesus starts preaching this message. And the message he preaches is the good news of the kingdom. Because what Jesus is saying, he's saying the Old Testament promise is finally fulfilled. Because I'm the true king. And God is restoring all things through me. The hopes of the Old Testament are about to be realized. And this is shocking. This is actually shocking. Because Jesus is saying, I'm the true king. I'm going to gather the nations and I'm going to rule over the world one day. And Jesus' mission is actually more glorious than what most people expected. When most Israelites thought about a king, a savior, and a messiah, what did they want? They wanted to be freed from who? From Rome. From Caesar. They said, give me a political savior. Give me a military hero. And Jesus is saying, no, my mission is much better. I'm not just here to save Israel from Rome. I'm here to save all peoples, including our enemies, the Romans. And I'm not here to free you from Caesar, because your real enemy is the power of sin, Satan, and death. And so guess what Jesus does? He chooses 12 disciples, and they start healing the sick and cleansing lepers and casting out demons and feeding hungry and welcoming outcasts. And they actually do some things that are pretty countercultural. They honor the poor. They show respect to widows and to prostitutes and to tax collectors. They confront injustice. Now, I want to give you one snapshot of what Jesus' earthly ministry looked like. This is a quick story I'm going to read. And it involves four friends, four young men. And they had a friend who had dire physical need. This friend was paralyzed. He couldn't move. And guess what they heard? They heard that Jesus was on his tour of Galilee. And he came to their very own hometown. And they thought to themselves... If we can just get our friend near Jesus, he'll be what? He'll be healed. Maybe he can walk, walk again. And so Jesus is teaching in this room. There's no social distancing at this time. They kick the door open, and all they see is the back of heads, and they realize there is no room in the house. But they don't give up. They're undeterred, and guess what they do? They go on the roof of this house, and they start pounding on the ceiling. And they start pulling away bricks and rocks, and they remove the roof, 
and they drop this friend right in front of Jesus as he's teaching. This is where we'll pick up. And Jesus looks at this young man who can't move his arms, his fingers, or his hands. He can't even wiggle his toes. Jesus looks at him and notice what he does. Does he heal him physically? No, the first thing that Jesus does is he says this. My son, your sins are forgiven. And some of Israel's religious leaders there thought to themselves, why does this man speak like that? Who can forgive sins except for God alone? And Jesus said to them, why do you question these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins, he turned and said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and go home. And he did it. And everyone was amazed. So do you see what this story is demonstrating? Jesus is speaking and acting like who? He's acting like God, because that's who he is. And so Jesus looked at this man, and this man thinks, my greatest need, my greatest problem in life is what? My paralysis. And Jesus says, no, you have a much deeper problem. Your main problem, the most significant hardship, adversity that you're facing is that you're not right with me. You haven't been reconciled. And notice this. This guy's got some really good friends. And I'll be willing to bet that there are young men, young women here who are realizing for the, for the first time maybe I've got some really good friends who made significant sacrifices to bring me on beach projects so I could get near who? Get near Jesus. So I could experience healing. So I could receive forgiveness. I know that there are staff members and classmates and teammates who probably sacrificed money and gas and, and, and time and conversation just to get you down to Beach Project, not because they love CO or Beach Project, because they said, just like these good friends, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get you near Jesus. And I don't know much, but I know that Jesus can heal. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus speaks like God, and Jesus has the power of God. He is demonstrating, he is doing what only God can do. And guess what? Even his own disciples still believe that this Messiah is going to be a conquering king and not a crucified one. So how does Jesus become king? How does he become king? Well, he continues to do mighty acts. He's forgiving sins of anyone who will trust in him. Even foreigners and social outcasts and people with bad reputations. And at the same time, you saw it in this story... Every time that Jesus preaches the good news of grace, there's church leaders and religious influencers that they get angry, they get bitter because Jesus is exposing their pride, their hypocrisy, their narcissism. And so these religious leaders, they start arguing with Jesus. They get in beef with Jesus. Let's go to the next slide. Now, it's never a good idea to get in an argument with the Son of God, but these guys give it a shot. And so they approach Jesus, and here's what they say. They say, Jesus, when we hear you pray in calling him your father, you make yourself equal to, be, to God. To which Jesus responded, I and the Father are one. You understand what Jesus is saying? He's saying, God the Father and I, we are one. And how do the religious leaders respond? They say that this is blasphemy. You know what that word means? It means this is an insult. That Jesus, you're just a man. You're just a leader, and you are teaching, healing, operating as if you're God, and that is blasphemy. And you know that back in the ancient Near East, this was a capital offense. This was a big deal, meaning you lose your life. 
It's a crime that's punishable by death. And so these religious leaders, they form a plot, and they decide we've got to get rid of Jesus. We've got to rub him out. And they devise a plan where they're going to get the Romans to execute Jesus. So after just three years, after just three years of teaching and preaching, Jesus is arrested and he's put on trial in a religious court in Jerusalem. And here's what the religious leaders do. They trot up a bunch of false witnesses and they drum up false accusations. They lie about Jesus. They slander Jesus. You know how Jesus responds? Let's go to the next slide. It says that he responded silently like a sheep who would be led to slaughter. Jesus doesn't defend himself. He doesn't take up his cause. And eventually the judge or the high priest, the man with the gavel, he's getting fired up and he looks at Jesus and this is what he says. He says, Jesus, just shoot me straight. I got to know, are you the Messiah? Are you the Savior, the Son of God? Are you the goat? Look what Jesus says. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I'm the exalted one. I am the anointed king. And I am worthy of all praise, glory, and honor from all nations. And guess what the high priest does? They flip out. They're outraged. They're furious. They start tearing their clothes. They rip out their beards. And they condemn him to death right on the spot. They hand him over to Roman authorities. They whip Jesus 39 times because he is a threat to Caesar's rule. They torture him. They place a beam on his back. He carries it three miles to the Mount of Golgotha. They drive three-inch stakes in his wrists and his feet. They anoint him. The first time Jesus ever wears a crown, it's a crown of thorns. The first time ever Jesus is referred to as king, it's mocking, and they spit on him. And on the cross, Jesus breathes his last breath. And this is the part of the story that you're familiar with and you know, but you know this. It doesn't end there, does it? Because just three years later, three days later, God raises Jesus from the dead. And it surprises everyone, including his disciples. And so Jesus starts appearing to his followers, his disciples, his family members, proving his resurrection, saying, feel my scars, touch the cup. And he's been explaining that this is God's plan all along revealed in Scripture. So here's where we're going to wrap it up. What, what, what's the big deal? Why does this matter? What is the significance of his life, his death, and his resurrection? Well, let me just say this. We said the story of Scripture, we, we, we said the narrative of Scripture is a story, right? And at some point, you probably took English 101, and there's always a background, a setting, there's rising action, and then there's what? There's a climax to every story. This is the climax. The death and resurrection of Jesus. Every Marvel movie, every Avengers movie has a climax. And usually, it's when the superhero, Captain America, Iron Man, steps forward and says what? I'm going to achieve decisive victory. I'm going to save the day. That's what the cross and resurrection is. It's the climax of human history. Let's just recap. Because of our rebellion, because of the fall, we devastated God's good creation. We brought division and separation between God and ourselves. And as a result, our world is full of injustice, violence, selfishness, and death. And yet, in the Old Testament, God made a promise. 
And the first promise was to Adam in Genesis 3.15. He looks at Adam and he says, One day, I promise that there would be a Savior. And this Savior, his heel will be bruised, but he's going to crush the head of Satan. Well, when was that accomplished? When was that fulfilled? On the cross. You ever thought about that? The cross is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Because on the cross, even though Jesus was tortured, persecuted, and executed, it was just a scratch to his heel. But he achieves victorious defeat because when he dies in our place, he crushes the, the, the head of sin. And so God is saying, this is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. You remember this yesterday? What does God promise Abraham? He says, Abraham, one day, one of your descendants, one of your seed, singular, not plural, one of your great, 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 great grandkids will bless the nation. And who is the fulfillment of the son of Abraham? It's Jesus. Because his life, death, and resurrection, they bless all tongues, tribes, and nations. Remember, Owen mentioned a guy named King David and said one day that there's going to be a king who is going to have an eternal rule and dominion. Well, guess what? It wasn't David, was it? And it wasn't his son Solomon. Only Jesus sits on the throne forever. Jesus fulfills every Old Testament promise. But he also fulfills so much more. Remember how Owen talked about the tabernacle? This building that people would come to to worship God and to be in his very presence? Well, guess what Jesus calls himself? The tabernacle. Because he says, look, I'm not, I'm not built of brick and mortar, but I'm a walking, talking, breathing tabernacle because I'm the very presence of God. Remember the great high priest, how he would make sacrifices, animal sacrifices as a sign or symbol that first off, our sin deserves death and we need a substitute? Do you know when Jesus busts on the scene, this guy who baptizes him, his cousin John the Baptist, when he first sets his eye on them, he says this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now look, you guys have been to a lot of campus outreach, Bible studies, church services, and conferences. You ever seen a pastor walk a sheep on, on, on stage and just sacrifice him? Look, Peter would freak out, okay? I would freak out. But the reality is there's no need. Because Jesus was the perfect, ultimate sacrifice, Right? He is the Lamb of God, and when He died on the cross, it was for sins past, present, and future. Do you know this? Hebrews sacrificed lambs for 2,000 years, and like this, it stopped. You want to know why? Because we look back to the ultimate sacrifice. And so finally, said, Jesus says, I am the King. I said all things right, and I'm restoring the world. And so this is what the cross is all about. This is the culmination of a life of sacrificial love. And scripture was pointing it to it all along. You see right here. Jesus says this. Everything written in the law of Moses. That's the Old Testament. It must be fulfilled. The Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus is fulfilling scripture. And because of his obedience through his life, death, and resurrection. We can be reconciled with God. And the restoration of this entire universe has begun. So what about the resurrection? What did it accomplish? Well, it gives us confidence. Just one word, confidence. It gives us confidence, first and foremost, that his sacrifice was enough. That God accepted it. That he was pleased. It also reminds us that Jesus is king over all and that a new day has dawned. And that what we lost in Adam and Eve's rebellion, what we learned yesterday 
is starting to be put back right again. So this is what Jesus is up to now. We're going to take a little break, sing a few songs, and I'm going to take you to the next chapter. But just know this. Jesus is on the move. Jesus is restoring all things for our joy okay, and the unification of all people in his kingdom. Okay? So here's what we're going to do next. Jeff, are we going to do discussion? Okay. So we're trying to break up this story into six small chapters. So we're going to have just a couple minutes where you guys just start talking, interacting about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to take a little break, sing a few songs, and I've got a very short talk about the church. What does that mean for us today?